You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Michael Katakis is the author of Dispatches, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and Excavating Voices, Listening to Photographs of Native Americans, and Traveler, Observations from an American in Exile. Chris Harden is a cultural anthropologist. Their new book is Photographs and Words with Chris Harden. Thank you for joining me, Michael and Chris. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This is such a beautiful book and a wonderful journey around the world. It's a vision of the world, a story of the world, and these stories interweave and form like links in a chain. And this chain arcs across the, the book. Uh, I'd like you, uh, Chris, as a, the, the writer in the book, the, the one who, who brought the words here, I'd like you to talk just about the process of starting this you know now because mm-hmm. this reaches back across so many years of your lives and i'd like you to just talk about um being in the the 21st century and looking back at the 20th century around the world well it was um a wonderful uh, experience in fact going back over 20 so years of notes that I had taken on Sierra Leone and to be able to think about the work that I had done, the, the small pieces that I had written and how they might all be interconnected So when I was doing research in Sierra Leone, I had information on uh, agriculture there. I had a lot of recordings of music and ceremonies. And I had my notes on participating in these events. So what working on the book allowed me to do was kind of pull all of this stuff together and try to make some sense out of it. Um, It was an act of self-definition in a way. It it absolutely was, and it was at a time in my life that I kind of needed to do that. And and Um, the, the power of that need, I think, uh, we can feel that driving the narrative and uniting the book. Now, Michael, you wrote some of the prose and, and took the photographs and made many of the journeys, some with and some without Chris. So I'd like you to talk about, um, again, some of this stuff reaches back. There are photographs of you and your father in 1984. I mean, that was a completely different world, wasn't it? It was a different world. Um, Sadly so. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a very different world. It had, in its place and time, struggles, personal and historical, going on. But it was a different time because I think uh, in doing this book, going over a lot of the material, what I, what I took for granted then that seems to be disappearing very quickly today, and this is perhaps why I'm very uncomfortable in the 21st century, is there was time for reflection. Things weren't moving at the same speed. So there was a way, unconsciously, of savoring or having something move into your subconscious in a different way. Those experiences with my father, just like for everyone, go in your subconscious, and over time and more experience, things come out. You define them differently. You look at them with perhaps a tinge more romanticism, but I also think, in my case, more clarity. More clarity. So it was a very different world. But doing the book, I could see the patterns and the road that led me to where I am today, which was a surprise for me. 
because we keep assuming that history is in the past. I now know that it keeps rolling in front of us and we keep running into it. Past isn't past? No. <laughs> past isn't past. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think that is so effective about this book is that the way the photographs are done, the way the prose is printed, and this goes, we were talking a bit about this before the, the interview, the design of the book allow the reader to have the kind of experience, to have the kind of relaxed pace and savor the book and the photograph and the journey with a lot more space between the words, between the photographs. And I think that's an interesting, I, I'm guessing that's deliberate. It is deliberate because as much as what I've just said to you about there is no time to reflect very much in the, in the world we live in right now. People are connected all the time. Two things we did not want. We did not want a modern book that reflected that kind of lack of reflection. Second, we wanted, we wanted a book, I don't know how to say this properly, that was not a photography book, that it, it was a number of things, almost like an old family scrapbook. It reminds me of an explorer's journal. I, it's somebody, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it's like you, um, when you were saying this, an old time uh, book, this reminds me a lot of what you might expect from a, a 19th century explorer encountering the world for the first time. You make mm. that possible in the 21st century. I think with the style of your photographs, the style of Chris's prose, the kind of observations you make, and again, you know, the kind of the open design, the relaxed pace here, it's not just chock-a-block full, everything you can open and savor, and, and the way it's done, and I think the, co the composition of your photographs invite us to, to take our time with this book. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Taking time with the book, I think, was very important to us. Chris, I'd like you to tell us a little bit. This book begins um, with a section called Before War. And it's visions of an Africa that I think we can no longer comprehend, not only because that Africa no longer exists, but also because the means by which we experience other parts of the world has become so herky-jerky, so intensely uh, concentrated that it takes a book like this to pull us back. You were in Sierra Leone in the 1980s. Tell us a little bit about what it was like then for you as a graduate student there. Um, well, certainly it was a, a big adventure because I had not spent that much time outside the United States when I first went to uh, Sierra Leone. I had spent, oh, maybe a couple months in Mexico, and that was, that was it. So for me, it was this wonderful adventure, one of the reasons that I went into anthropology was that I was convinced uh, from the time I was a beginning graduate student, I was convinced that life in the United States wasn't all that was out there, that there were people who thought about the world very differently than I did, whose lives made sense to them, that there was a rationality to the decisions that they made, and that we as Americans assumed that many people should be behaving just like we did. And I was convinced that, no, that was not the case. That there were other ways of living one's life, and I was interested in exploring those. Um, 
And this probably comes from, you know, as, a, as an anthropologist, the, the one person that, that people know, well, there are several people, Margaret Mead and, say, Joseph Campbell. Um, but Joseph Campbell is a universalist. Mm -hmm. He's looking at myth everywhere and then looking for commonalities, mm -hmm. or he was. Mm. Um, anthropology teaches you to look more at the specificity of these things that may be universals. So we know myth exists everywhere, but why do these people tell this particular myth in this way? So I was interested in those specificities. How do people grow rice in this area? Uh, how, how do they raise their children? Um, how do they perform certain ceremonies? And what does, that, what does that mean to them? So I was interested in those kinds of specificities. When we talk about specificities, you're so good about telling stories and capturing characters. And I love Corporal Tomba. Tell us about Corporal Tomba because uh, it's so interesting that, that, you know, the story of a fortune teller, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, once a week, I would walk to the uh, market in the area. Um, the market was in a town called Igbeda, and every time I walked down that road, I would see Corporal Tam Tamba. He would kind of pop up from his uh, veranda, uh, kind of hidden from view until he would pop up. So obviously he was watch watching the the road that passed in front of his house all the time. And whenever I saw him, whenever you see anyone, you, you greet them, you, there are certain polite ways of uh, opening conversation. And um, he was always dressed the same way. Um, he had a balding hair, a kind of a, I think it's called a jeliba. So the more that I saw him, I realized that, and, and got to know the people in this town where I was li living, I found out that he was a fortune teller. And that often when I would be standing top, talking to him, a woman would be walking down the road and she would whisper something to him and he would escort her inside and, um, and then she would have her fortune told. Uh, many times it was pregnant women who wanted to um, no, be reassured that everything was going to be okay with the delivery. And other times it was people with other, other kinds of questions. Now, so Mike, I became intrigued with, uh, with this. Michael, would you talk about capturing him on film? And uh, I guess had you guys met before this? So is this when you first ran into one another, or were you? No, no, oh. we we had traveled there together. Okay, I mean, we had traveled there together. But Corporal Tamba for me was uh, one of these characters who transcended time and place. Mm -hmm. He just seemed to be something of the earth <laughs> that kind of sprouted up, and he had this extraordinary face and this extraordinary bearing about mm -hmm. him that was at once welcoming and also proud. And I was rather stunned by his, his bearing and his, his pride. Mm -hmm. uh, 
he was someone who you liked being around. That it was, uh, I can see why uh, people went to ask him what was in their futures, uh, because he, I think, engendered that kind of confidence, his lovely eye. And as Chris so eloquently writes, also a very, very brave man. Well, that's one of the things I think that's so nice about uh, this book. When I'm looking at it here, you know, all the space on the page gives us the feeling of standing, that, you know, those dusty roads. And, and two, it, it strikes, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your photography. Uh, this must have been taken with a, 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 a real camera, as we would yes, call it. Yes, I, I have always and still use a, a Leica mechanical camera. Mm -hmm. It's not an electronic camera, it's not a digital camera, it's a mechanical camera. And now this is, and you photograph in black and white, and I, and I, yes. I, I love your black and white compositions and the way it looks, Thank you. but I wanted to ask you uh, why you choose black and white instead of color. Uh, I. I love black and white because there's no place for the subject then to hide. There's no pretty greens or blues or yellows. There is just the story. That's taken down to its... If I was going to compare it to something, I'd compare it to fine French cooking, which the principle is reduction, reduction, reduction. Mm -hmm. So I've taken away... The black and white allows me to just focus in and the viewer to just focus in on the subject. Well, that's really fascinating. Do you develop, develop your own film, too? Yes. And print it? Yes. Wow, that's so interesting. Do you do that here in Carmel? Uh, no, not in Carmel. I don't have a darkroom here. Uh, but uh, I process film here. Mm -hmm. I process the negatives here, but not the printing. Well, now, um, in this book, you kind of mix your commentary and Chris's commentary and your photographs. And, and this must have been done by the two of you, I, I'm presuming. So I'd like you to just tell us a little, take us into that process. Because for you, this, as you said, this strikes us as a family album. So this must have been kind of a joyous process for you to um, put this book together. I. Joyous is not a word I would use. <laughs> Anyone who has done a project with uh, a spouse understands yeah. what he means. Yeah. I don't think we'll go into detail. No. Uh, but uh, also, uh, it was, and I don't think Chris has heard this from me before, for me it was very bittersweet on a number of levels. One, it was very difficult for me uh, to go over the negatives and the prints again mm -hmm. of many of these people who are most probably have been killed, mm -hmm. who are in the Sierra Leone. Yes. And so that is very unpleasant. The other thing that is very unpleasant is I was reminded in dramatic fashion of the little girl that lived next door to us mm -hmm. that uh, I could not save in that piece that um, I wrote. Uh, because the realization came to me that years later that I did have a choice, but I did not choose the correct choice. So these were constant reminders. This is, the, this is kind of like in slow motion mm -hmm. what politicians and corporate people have to go through now when they purposely mislead and lie. They keep forgetting they've been videotaped in the past and there's a record. <laughs> so they contradict themselves. I think this, uh, as I was going through the book, uh, also was about youth mm -hmm. and uh, before Chris became ill. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot going on in this that I was not prepared for mm. as we started going through it. Uh, but I'm very happy with the way it turned out, because I think above all, it's true. Mm -hmm. So I think above all, <laughs> it's true well, and honest. And that, I think, is worth something. That's something to celebrate. Yes, it is. May I answer sure. that question? 
in some cases, when when we started put, putting our materials together for archiving uh, at the British Library, mm -hmm. which all of these photographs, all the writing, everything will be on deposit for them, or with them. And as that process was going on, it kind of stirred a lot of memories and uh, things that, gee, I would like to write a piece about that. Or there'd be a photograph, like the photograph of Corporal Tamba. It was like, no, no one is going to understand anything about this man, really, right. un unless there's something written about it. And I actually, I mean, I had something to say. So in that case, there was the photograph that stirred the memories that led to the writing. And in other cases, there was a piece that I felt compelled to write. Um, and then we found a photograph that kind of fit yeah. with that. Because there were so many photographs to go through. Yeah. Mm. And also the part of uh, September 11th yeah. was not pleasant uh, to go through again. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but um, well, now I want to stay a little bit on, on uh, Africa here, because tell us about the, and I, I'm not going to pronounce this right, the Kain Kordu? King Cordu. King Cordu. Tell us about them, and you know this is this is something that, to which you just alluded. They may no longer exist. Right. Um, when did you first meet them? I first went there in 1982, mm -hmm. and I lived in this town until 1984. Um, I went back uh, and. This was the first time that Michael went in uh, 1988, uh, shortly after we got married. It was kind of our honeymoon. Oh we laughed. <laughs> she <laughs> sure know how to show a boy a good time. <laughs> I mean, it was quite extraordinary. But um, uh, then, yeah, we went back together in 1982, 88, and again in 1991. Just before the Civil just War. Just after the Civil War started. Yeah, just after, excuse me. Yeah. Um, but in 1888, 1988, you could, you could, I, you could feel the tensions, tensions of something brewing. That um, life was harder for people. That. Um, that diamond mining was taking over everybody's attention. Um, so instead of maybe farming, people would go down to work in the diamond fields. You saw them everywhere. They were mm -hmm. digging, digging, digging everywhere uh, for, for the diamonds. It was, it was, it, it looked like what the gold rush must have looked like. Not, not good, I'm guessing. Not good, but, but you saw people digging for their dreams. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, with that kind of urgency in a yeah. place like Sierra yeah. Leone, digging for your dreams that just with the next shovel full, with the next hole, my life can change. I can change everything. And at it's exhilarating it's, and terrifying all at the same because time. Because it's alluvial mining. It's not kimberlite where Just there under are the veins surface. of things. Uh, in, you find diamonds in the um, gravels in riverbeds and yeah. stuff. So people were digging to unearth the gravel. It sounds and kind of like a, a setting for a desperation. Yes. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Incredible, incredible desperation. I mean, there were there were weeks, months, even some years where people 
who had government salaries, like teachers and uh, sanitation workers, um, just weren't paid. So what do you do? They went into the fields. You dig, you dig yeah. through the dirt, and that that digging through the dirt is such a. It seems such a a, a metaphorical mm -hmm. um, experience, you know, out of that kind of desperation. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing that as you were looking at your photographs and you looking at some of your writings done in that time, um, that <clears throat> you must have sensed that in what you must have with the advantage of hindsight, you could have understood your own reactions back then because back then you must have sensed what was coming. Mm -hmm. you, yes. But not, not, you couldn't see the future. Now you no. can understand what, now you, that you've experienced the future, you can understand what your sensibilities were. Mm -hmm. See, I don't believe in fortune tellers, but mm -hmm. what I do believe in is if one is engaged in the world, uh, which I think, as this book goes on, what it reminded me of, Chris and I have been on a search for the last 25 years to understand the world truly, mm -hmm. not as we would wish truly it. Truly is not a word I would use. Okay, <laughs> see, now you get some idea of how they're working together, the word. But no, I, I, I'll speak for me then. It has been a search to see the world truly as it is, not as we would wish it to be, mm -hmm. even though you have wishes and hopes for how the world will change. And during the diamond mining that we saw there, you saw the world undressed up in a very dramatic way. Mm -hmm. And you saw the worst of human behavior in many ways. Not only the people who were digging for the, for the, the diamonds, for this dream of something better, but the people who then handled the diamonds and smuggled them, who they handed them to, the Lebanese traders often, mm -hmm. who, you know, maybe you got 40 bucks for a million dollar stone or something I, like that. I talked to one scholar in the 80s who had been doing research on the diamonds, and um, he said that 80% of the funding or the, the money for the diamonds went into Swiss ba bank accounts. Very little of the, the money from the diamonds came back to the people themselves. So there was this sense of desperation. And in 1984, when I left Sierra Leone, there was still this sense of hope. Mm -hmm. You know, you would take a taxi, and they'd be playing, um, music and uh, you know Bob Marley and other well, music. Well they're all music too. Sierra Leone has a rich music itself. Yes, but very little of that mm. <clears throat> had been recorded, has been recorded commercially. Mm. And um, but you'd get in a taxi and there would be a tape of uh, something that kind of brought the people together in mm -hmm. the taxi, because you're in this taxi, like a, uh, a small taxi, and there's six or seven people crowded in with you. So this kind of music was used as a, uh, a, way, a way of bringing people together, keeping their complaints down, and, mm -hmm. uh, and all of that. But um, by the time we were there in 88, all of the tapes must have broken or something because there was no longer music in the right. taxis. People were grumbling about everything. People were upset. I mean, you could, you could visibly see this. A drift toward mm -hmm. something. Drift toward you didn't ang know. more anger yeah. at the government. Um, the roads were worse than they had been uh, in the earlier 80s. Um, and let's, so, yeah, there was a deterioration of people's outlooks, people's ideas of what was possible for them. Mm -hmm. 
what oh. was possible? That's an interesting... Uh, Not much. Mm. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. I mean, there were... You know, people struggled, really struggled, to get an education, to get into one of the colleges in Sierra Leone. But even people that had high school degrees um, or college degrees found it very hard, hard to find work. Mm. And also, you know, when your child is very sick, Mm-hmm. and then dies from tetanus, mm. where they bring you to the side of the road, the body of the side of the road, to try to get it picked up. This, this creates anger mm. of an extraordinary kind. Well, that, yeah. And, uh, and not only a sense of anger at the loss of your child, uh, 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 a sense of, you wouldn't allow me these forces, these hidden hands, for me to earn what my work was worth, or being able to do, you, you've now attacked the person's fundamental humanness. Self-worth. Absolutely. And this worked on people. This really worked on people, because I must say, uh, they were some of the loveliest people I had ever met, and some of the most hardworking people I'd ever met. But they were caught in a very, very difficult place with a very difficult situation and was very, very... You couldn't tell that that kind of civil war, at least I couldn't, was going to break through with such extraordinary violence. But you knew something was coming. You knew something was coming. Well, your next section um, in the book kind of takes us to past the end point of what was coming when you give us images of the Vietnam Wall. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. images of the final, final, past the end outcome of a, of a war. And I think that I'd like, uh, Chris, your essay is particularly powerful in this because you describe yourself as one of the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a photo of a, somebody doing a rubbing of the name of Michael's, uh, one of Michael's friends. And I think that's just such a powerful photograph. So I'd like you two to talk about, you know, these, these photographs of, of the Vietnam Wall, which I think is, you know, it's an interesting thing to photograph and, and to, to, to work with, especially, you know, given that you, you know, had come from, from Africa and, you know, from one, from, a place before one war to a place mm-hmm. long after. <clears throat> I was courting Chris in Washington. This, this project happened completely by accident. Mm. And uh, I had gone to see Chris in Washington, D.C., where she was at the Smithsonian at the time. And I decided to go pay my respects to a high school friend at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and was so shocked and horrified by my reaction when I saw his name that I had to gather myself a bit and sat alongside the memorial for an extended period of time and watched people going up and down the memorial and realized that my reaction was not unique in any way. Um, And so I went back that night, I remember very well, and Chris and I were talking, and I told her how how shaken I was by this. And she began to talk to me about other monuments in other places and talked about, from a sociological point of view, about this. And I began to become more curious. And uh, a few days later, I took my camera sheepishly to the memorial and took a few frames from a very far distance away. I was very intimidated to move close to people there. And that's how it began. That's how it began. So it was first a personal reaction, and then this view after talking with Chris that it might be rather important to photograph not the memorial, but the legacy of the war that keeps moving in front of it, which were the people left behind, the way Chris described them later, the ghosts in the wall, weren't the names on the wall, 
but the people who kept moving in front of the memorial and their reflections, trying to find closure, and most of them never really finding it. Chris? That, that's such a beautiful essay, and that's a really powerful perception. Um, this idea of people, the, the living haunting the dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are the ghosts. It's that ghosts aren't the shades of the dead. Where are we, the living, are, are right. the ghosts haunting this world? Right. And as you walk by the memorial, um, you see a reflection in the black granite that's there with the names on it, and you you wonder who all these people were. Um, um, I know none of the people whose names are on the wall, but I think about them, and I think about uh, what our government enticed them to do. Um, and that while some people stood up and protested and, and the people that Michael photographed and their comments about um, grief, <clears throat> about uh, what their lives were going to be like now that they had lost a, love, a loved one. Um, it was just very, uh, very moving to me. And you wrote and about I, it very well. I mean, And I uh, had the opportunity to interview Maya Lin, which was fascinating, too. Um, she, I think, is someone who studies emotion. She must be able to do the kinds of designs that she does that are so moving. <clears throat> and she said that she knew what people's reactions would be to the wall. And um, it took a long time for the rest of us to understand it. But I had the opportunity to take uh, my aunt and uncle to the memorial at night. Uh, they were visiting in Washington, D.C. And my uncle was a veteran of World War II. And I saw, you know, knowing these people very well and then seeing their reaction to the memorial. It was such a, such a powerful uh, response that I started looking at other people's responses a little more closely. And then when Michael suggested this uh, book on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, it kind of gave me a place to vent some of that emotion. Well, you know, when you were describing her sense of uh, design and style, it reminded me of what Michael said about why he photographs in black and white. Mm -hmm. What she does is take it right down to the subject. And this is, to be honest, this is why I prefer reading stories to seeing them in movies or experiencing mm -hmm. them some other way because it takes it down to it's just you and the story in its barest sense. And you have to bring everything to the story to make sense of it. Um, you have a, a beautiful section of kind of artifacts, little pieces kind of uh, of your world tour. And uh, Chris, I, I love the piece about witch finders. Oh. Chumas. 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 Mm -hmm. So uh, I, tell us about where did you find these people and, and how did you come across them? 
um, you know, because I was living in this town, mm -hmm. I saw all of the things that went on, you know. I went to funerals, I went to celebrations, I went to, uh, there was an agricultural fair that the government had put on for the whole of the chiefdom at one point. And the Choma that I got to know was first performed, I first saw him performing there. And then uh, several months later, someone else was having some trouble, um, either someone was very sick, I don't remember the specific thing, someone was very sick and perhaps dying, someone couldn't uh, have a child, uh, somebody, someone's rice crops had failed several years mm -hmm. in a row, those mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that, that they might call a, a choma for. And chomas are known to find witches, and witches kind of uh, step into people's daily lives to let them know that they have done some, something wrong, <laughs> or that, uh, or someone sends them a witch, and it's the Choma's job to find out, well, how do you, how do you appease this witch? How do you keep them from bothering your life? <laughs> and it's all very, um, a neighborhood arbitrator. <laughs> right, a neighborhood arbitrator <laughs> a would be a good it. way to put it. And I was just so taken with this young man. Um, his costume was fabulous, and there are mm. one or two pictures yeah. of it in there. And uh, I started talking with him, interviewing him, really, to find out how he became this witch finder and people don't like to talk about witches too much no. because too much you'll be identified as a witch <laughs> so it was some it was yes. a topic that i kind of skirted around very carefully um, and so anyway he started telling me his life story his father had been a witch finder and um, had uh, been ill. So um, the, general, the young man that I spoke with was in school at that point and was called back to his father's home. And the father told the son that he must become a witch finder, <laughs> that this was his calling in life. Yes. And the, the, witch, the young man said, what, what, why not? <laughs> I didn't know you did that. <laughs> and anyway, was sent somewhere for training. <laughs> to witch finder school? <laughs> I love the image of it. I'm a witch and I've made a good living and you're going to be a witch too. You know, I just love that image. Well, I think of, uh, Vincent Price in Witchfinder General. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that could be it. But um, it was very uh, interesting to speak with this young man, and I saw him dance. I mean, dance is a very important thing in this area. And I saw him dance in Cancordu several times, and as he dances, uh, he's doing battle with the witches and they may uh, he will he, he, if he finds a witch he will kill it and the, the person that is the witch will die certain um, this is kind shortly of after mm. um, after the witch finder leaves. Mm. And then everybody will know who the witch was. It's kind of a 
self-fulfilling prophecy. Because someone <laughs> will die at yeah. some point. Right. Sure. Oh, I see. So yeah. he finds the witch, and the next person to die is the witch. It can yeah. be. It can happen mm. that way. It depends on the person's reputation mm, and yes. everything. But um, but this young man was fascinating to me because he'd obviously been in school. Um, he spoke uh, some English, and this was how he was going to spend his life. He lived in a very divided world, it sounds like. He had some great yeah, awareness of maybe. the 21st century, but yeah. he still lived in a world where witches and witch finding was a real thing. I mean, yeah. it's, it was a, serious it's business. <clears throat> as serious, I mean, witches may seem invisible to us, but so is electricity. I mean, unless mm -hmm. you're being shocked. Well, you know, it's, it's the old, you know, the saying, voodoo can only hurt you if you believe in it. Mm -hmm. But if you believe in it, it can't, it is real. Sure. It is real. And it was, you know, yeah. it was real. And I'm sure there is some sort of um, uh, response that people have who feel guilty like they've done you know something wrong sure, sure. Um, you know wished bad on some for someone's child or someone in their family or um, it's the old guilt principle sure yeah something. yeah now now Michael in this section uh, you talk about being in Morocco now in 2006 this is at a time when you were consider yourself to be, I think, in exile Yes. Uh, from America. And we'll get to, to that in the front, almost final part of the book about 9-11. But I wanted to talk, you say something very interesting. You start this passage and say, you're lost in the Medina. And then you end it or set by saying, you're never lost in the Medina. Yes, the and, gentleman who. <laughs> this. And I think this gets to the nature of this book. There's a kind of cyclic nature to each of these sections. They seem to, to loop back in on themselves and loop the loops hook into one another mm -hmm. in kind of uh, intuitive, in an intuitive, not necessarily a straightforward manner. And um, I'd like you to just talk about as a photographer and a writer, which are very different mediums, um, uh, putting those two together and then putting your life back together right, in this way for you because uh, you know you would spent a, a fair amount of time out of America. And yes. You know, um, you know, Rick, one of the things I've always loved, and I'm going to get to your point, but one of the things I've always loved when there are certain places that you land in the world, mm -hmm and you feel immediately comfortable. Mm. But you don't really know why. If this keeps happening, in, and you really observe, and you really pay attention, you'll, you'll figure out what, what is this place like, the, the last place where I felt like this. And for me, it's a place that is part modernity, part the past, that's struggling between those two parts and a certain level of decay all around it. I'm very happy in those places. And the reason I'm very happy in those places... I love it, that description. You know, <laughs> uh, the reason I'm happy in those places is because everything around me has seen the likes of me for a very long time. It reminds me that I'm merely passing through. And with all of my focus, all of my successes or failures, I am really irrelevant. And it reminds me that unimportance has its place. And when I feel that, I feel more free than I've ever felt before. Because you're let off the hook. And I have learned in time, that's how you take, or I take, very fine photographs. The less I cared about it, the more I forgot the camera, and the more I forgot I was focused on the life. And whether the picture came out or not became irrelevant. The photograph itself became irrelevant. Focus That's on when the life. photographs became wonderful. I love that. That's so perfect. So, so for me, 
in Fez or in parts of Morocco, I was at home. In, in, in Tangier, for instance, it was a place I was very clear that someone could be murdered in the street at any time and the world would not blink or take notice, nor the people in the closed shutters above me. There was something very comforting to me about that. I know that sounds, uh, I know that sounds odd, but there's something, it is finally complete, I know in the United States what a complete lack of discrimination looks like. It looks like indifference. Mm. I know that now. But I couldn't know it if I hadn't been in those places that remind me of how unimportant I am and then how comfortable I become with unimportance. That is so wonderful. And each time this has happened in these places, the work has gotten richer and better. That, that because there's so no posing. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting down. to the heart of it all. Sure. You're, you've taken down your preconceptions. Right. And, and that means that Chris and I, when we're in Morocco or in Istanbul, can talk to that young man who likes us so much but has become a fundamentalist, Al-Qaeda-loving Muslim and says, I'm so sorry, I really like you both so much, but you're damned. Because look at the website that I've been studying about this. Chris and I now move in and go, tell us more. Because now you're not offended by that. You're moving into it. How did you become this way? How do we become friends? How do we... You go deeper and deeper into something. And that's what those places do for me. And that's what the United States does not. You take a trip through America, 12 days across America. Mm -hmm. You were in Bozeman, Montana yes. on 9-11. And uh, I, I, this, this, this section is really, really powerful. And it's very, very interesting reading this section after reading the rest of the book and experiencing the photographs, particularly of Sierra Leone, because this, in a sense, reminds me of Sierra Leone, the United States, because it, it is a place where something really horrible is brewing, but nobody who's there knows it. You actually know it, I think, and because I think what helped you understand that was all your travels in these other places. So talk about this, these 12 days across America. Yes, I, I, I do want to say to you that, you know, watching the horrific images that morning that we woke up mm. of uh, the attacks on September 11th, uh, it's, uh, I need to make it very clear, it was absolutely horrifying, as everyone knows. But for us, it was not a surprise. Mm. In any way, the, what the surprise for us was, was how successful it was. Mm but not that it had taken place. All you had to do was go in the back streets of Paris in the banlieue three or four years before and hear the, the hatred and vitriol for the country coming out. Mm. Or parts of Morocco. Or part, this was not a surprise. Mm. So I, as you saw from the, I think you saw from the journal entry that I wrote that morning, mm -hmm. uh, later in the day, I was, uh, I'm still an American, you know, so mm. I was bridling my anger at what I had seen, but was determined to not get caught up in nationalistic heat mm. and rhetoric and try to, again, go deeper, see clearer, try to make, uh, try to make some sense of this, mm. and hoping that my American fellow countrymen would not go overboard. I was worried about this. So I start to go to uh, talk to people. I thought the best way for me to do this is to start here in Bozeman, Montana, where I was at the time, and then start to drive across the country, talk to different people from different walks of life, photograph them, really get what they're thinking, ending up in New York at ground zero and staying there for a period of time and documenting what was going on. Well. Uh, the picture going across the country was one that concerned me even more. 
you know, it strikes me when you talk about this that you and Chris are like, I think you're, you take, you're journalists as anthropologists. And and that's, I think, that's an interesting and I think a very smart approach to journalism. Mm. That you approach it not to just record the events, but to understand the people who are in those events you're recording. Yes. That's why I can never decide between photography and writing. Mm. I think of myself as a writer who's a, who photographs. But I, a, a picture standing alone for me, it's just not enough information for this kind of work. If it's an art piece, that's something else. But it's terribly important to me because I don't know how you evolve if you don't finally understand either what it is you wish to continue or who you no longer wish to be. And then we're going back to a Socratic questioning. The unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. Um, or as Gore Vidal would say now, the untelevised life is not worth living. <laughs> you know? But I do think there is something to be said about really trying to understand the world. Personally, I think as citizens, it's our obligation to do that. Well, I think that uh, one last thing I want to ask you guys about it is this lovely combination of words and images. You really, the two of you seem to find a balance between one another, between the words and the images, that really allows us to enter into your vision of the world, which as I I think, for me, ultimately, this is like an explorer's journal. This is like the 19th, the, the 19th century's guys and the little, and the little <laughs> cats walking around the modern world, or, or H.G. Wells's Martians coming here and oh, putting on little hats that. and, and I love that. looking looking around and saying, "What what quaint customs these people have? <laughs> <laughs> what what odd creatures they are!" <laughs> I hope we're not that apart. No, <laughs> so no, no. That's, oh, that's very charming, you know. <laughs> I hope. We <laughs> but you have that. I, I think you have um, this great combination of. Uh, Kind of a very objective view, yet completely involved at the at the lowest level, so, and, and and I think that's that sense of balance between the two of you and between the words and images. Well, I don't think that, for example, you can be a good anthropologist or a good photographer or a good writer if you don't allow your own emotions to intermix with what you're recording. Mm. That, uh, that one is always a part of the uh, panorama that you are recording. You're part of the picture. And my yes. point, you're taking those pictures. Or, yes. Or, yes, or else you run the risk of just being a voyeur. Yes. Mm. And if you're a voyeur, you, you can't elucidate very well on what's going on. Hence, when photographing the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the most difficult part was making the decision, though I never used long lenses, was I knew that I had to be very close to the people. Mm. I had to take the risk of moving very close to them at very, very difficult times in their lives. That's why that work took so long, because Sometimes I'd be standing next to a woman who, in one case, was looking up, then looked down, looked up, looked down, and then started pacing in front of the memorial. I knew that something was going to happen. I didn't know what, I didn't know when, so I began to pace with her within just a few, just uh, maybe 16 inches from each other. We walked in rhythm with each other. And then she looked up, and in a moment I stood to the side photographed as she just screamed and put her head in her hands. She had seen um, her husband's name, who had been missing in action. She had been asked, uh, this was years later, to, she was proposed to, to be married again. And she was coming there to say goodbye. Hmm. And the only way I could know those things is I waited till she was finished. She walked away from the memorial, 
And I followed her, introduced myself, and then asked, you know, I said, excuse me, I've just taken your photograph. My name is so-and-so. Could I sit down and talk with you a while about what's happened? And it was Chris who showed me how to do that. And I think but I, um, I think that uh, if you're not willing to be part of people's lives, if you don't have the courage to kind of step into their life in some way, asking questions, um, uh, finding out about them, then you shouldn't be doing this kind of recording because then you are a voyeur. You're kind of a thief in the night. Yeah. You're taking, appropriating a piece of their lives and a piece of their lives that's out of context for whatever purposes you wish to use them now. Well, you've given us great context into your lives and into the lives of the people you've seen. I've been speaking with Michael Katakis and Chris Harden about their book, Words and Photographs. Thank you for joining me, Michael and Chris. Thank you. Our pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.